Thanks for tuning in to the Bethel New England Message of the Week. It's really great to be here with you all today. Oh, was that bass coming from you? Oh, because that, that, like, <laughs> when we sang this morning, who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder? I'm like, that's what's going on up here. Come on. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I'm a musician. I get excited about the, the earth shaking, even if you caused it by the bass. Um, <laughs> So yes, I'm the director of Alive in Christ, and we offer hope to individuals, families, and churches who are impacted by same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria. I started working with Alive in Christ as a volunteer in April of 2003. So yeah, 20 years. I don't know how that happened. Uh, back when I was a baby Christian, and that, I became the director in August of 2004. To tell you a little bit more about us, we are interdenominational and Christ-centered. So as Pastor Eric said, I am part of the Assemblies of God here in Southern New England. I'm ordained in the Assemblies of God. I am a, currently a candidate missionary with the Assemblies of God, which just means I haven't raised my budget yet <laughs> all the way. But, you know, I just became a candidate. <laughs> I feel like I have to defend myself. I literally became a candidate missionary like a month ago, and I haven't gone to training yet. That's actually, I'm leaving in like five days for that. So it's a busy time. But I'm super excited to be part of the Assemblies of God. That's where I first went to church when I became a Christian in January of 99. But our ministry is interdenominational. It was actually founded at Park Street Church in downtown Boston, which is a conservative congregational church. And we have Nazarenes, and we're, we're all over the place. Um, but we do believe that Christ is the center of everything. That's our name, Alive in Christ. We believe Jesus is still in the business of changing lives. As Pastor said that a few minutes ago, and there are no exceptions. We are a discipleship and mentoring ministry. We believe that as we personally grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, as we walk shoulder to shoulder with others, dealing with the same things we are, whether it is other people dealing with same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria or family members who are impacted by these things. And as we are mentored by those who are further down the road, we will progressively walk into the freedom that Jesus Christ died to give. We offer hope through support groups. We have four support groups, both for people who struggle with same-sex attraction and family members. We love to come speak at churches. We offer trainings. We have several trainings now, a general training to equip the church on how to love well the LGBT person in their sphere of influence. And then we have a, another training. It's called Speaking to Youth about LGBTQ issues from a biblical perspective. Long title, really good material. And as Pastor said, I wrote a book, Learning to Walk in Freedom. It would be awesome if you picked up a copy at um, the Connect Center. It's been called like four different things. Help Center, the Welcome Center, the Connect Center. You're having branding issues? Okay. <laughs> I literally, someone who came up for prayer because if you, by the way, if you don't have $10, take a book. I'm not kidding. Where's Maria? I said that out loud. Um, <laughs> I mean it because someone who came up for prayer, I said, you know, do you have $10? Because if you don't, I'm going to go grab a book for you. Um, but obviously, I would love it if you could, if you could get, get a book because that helps the ministry. I really like congregational participation, so I like to ask questions even though I'm blinded by the light. 
not the light of Christ, the light of the chandeliers. <laughs> but uh, just raise your hand up high or yell out the answer. And um, this is my first question. How many of you remember your first crush? Oh, your hand went right up. How old were you? Yeah, third grade. Who else? How old were you? Young lady in the back. About four? Yeah, five. I, the youngest answer I've gotten was three. I mean, how many of you actually remember something from when you're three? I'm like, I don't even remember. That's awesome. How about when you first fell in love? How old were you when you first really fell in love? Zach? No, you're not Zach. You're, which one are you? See, I, I can't even see your face with these lights. Sorry. Zach was the one in the back. Anyway, tell me how old you were. 19. Aww. <laughs> Somebody else. Some, someone's trying to, like, raise up their adult's hand next to them. Well, you've been at you. It's your turn. You. 18. White shirt in the back. 26. 26. Oh, see, that's awesome. Well, this is going back a while for me, but I was 14. All right. I've been up a long time. <laughs> 15, let's try that again. I'm going to speak English properly. I was 15 when I f first really fell for someone. I think I was trying to say 15 and first at the same time. Anyway, um, I didn't have the easiest life. Didn't certainly didn't have the hardest life, but I always joke with people that I was born so early my parents were on a business trip. It's actually true. They're like, where were you born? Well, I was born in Vermont, but my parents actually lived in upstate New York at the time because I was so early that, that they were on a business trip. And I almost died because they didn't have facilities for premature babies. As time went on, my mother became an alcoholic and my father worked long hours and just seemed absent. As a young child, I made friends easily enough then junior high came. Where I'm from, it's junior high, seventh and eighth grade. I don't know what happened over the summer between sixth and seventh grade, but apparently I all of a sudden had a big nose. You guys want to see? There you go. Profile over here for the right. And they, some kids in my homeroom started calling me Snuffleupagus. Who knows who Snuffleupagus is? This like woolly mammoth elephant thing from Sesame Street. My nose wasn't that big. <laughs> And my hair was weird. It's still kind of weird. I can't decide if it's straight or curly. <laughs> I have to make the decision for it. Product today or no product? Uh, <laughs> my mother's alcoholism worsened, so I couldn't really have friends over anymore. And honestly, the bullying that I started to experience in seventh grade kind of solidified for me some beliefs that I had already been wrestling with. The belief that I was uniquely flawed that I was unlovable and worthy of rejection. Well, I felt like this changed at 15, barely 15, when I fell in love. I felt accepted and known like I had arrived. There was just a small problem, a teeny tiny little problem. I fell in love with my best friend, who was female. This was 1990. I like to say for context that I came out, even though I didn't really come out at 15, but I came out at, at 15, that was in 1990, and that's seven years before Ellen DeGeneres came out. 
And we can't imagine a world where a lesbian can't have her own talk show, right? So 30 years ago, when I got into a physical relationship with this other young lady who was also 15, I didn't know how to make sense of this. There certainly wasn't anyone I could talk to about it. And so I looked in a book, a health book, and the book said that if you experience same-sex attraction, and especially if you act on it, then you're gay. And I thought, there it is in black and white. I'm a homosexual. It seemed I had no choice but to accept this part of myself. The more the years went by, the more I read, the more the message became ingrained. This is who you are. You were born this way. You have to completely accept this part of yourself or you will never be happy. And I believed that this must be true, so I built my whole life around being gay. There is a young man in scripture who also felt he had no choice but to build his life upon the script he had been given and the set of circumstances he had been handed. Plus, what it seemed he was called to was so highly regarded in that society, why would he even consider another path? We're going to turn to Mark 10 and pray. God, as we look to your word, let your word look to us. <laughs> Like James talks about, not, not looking in a mirror and walking away and forgetting what you look like, but doing what it says because the perfect law brings freedom. That this wouldn't just be some exercise we check off our list for the week. Okay, spent time with God, read the word, worshipped, raised my hands a little. But we would believe that your word is living and active and it does not return void and that today we will encounter you in your word. Holy Spirit, who is truth, guide us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting in verse 17 in Mark 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Obviously, this young man's story differs quite a bit from my story and from people like me who at one time identified as LGBT. That term means lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. I use LGBT rather than one of the other LGBTQ or LGBTQIA+, because I'm going to be quoting from a survey, and the survey uses LGBT, okay? And this survey is from a book called Us Versus Us by Andrew Marin. Andrew Marin did a survey of the United States. Uh, just under 2,000 people were surveyed, and he compared 
the faith of the general American population to the faith of LGBT people. So like I said, I like congregational participation, so now I'm going to ask you guys some questions. He asked, these are separate surveys, but he asked almost 2,000 people who identify as LGBT, how many of you were raised going to a community of faith on a weekly basis from age 0 to 18? Okay? Now, remember that this is a nationwide study. Some of the numbers would be different if they took a survey just of New England because we are not as churched here, right? But what we're really looking for is the comparison between the general American population and the LGBT community. How do these numbers differ, okay? So nationwide, how many people, percentage, of the general American population do you think was raised going to a community of faith on a weekly basis from age zero to 18? Wow, you're all of a sudden real shy. You're, I'll stand here till you guess. Way in the back. 80. 70 or teen. Okay. The number is actually 75%. This survey was taken between 2007 and 2013. So not too long ago, published in 2014. 75% of the general American population was raised going to a community of faith on a weekly basis from age 0 to 18. What do you think the number is for LGBT folks? Do you think it's higher, lower? Same? Same? 60% lower? 86%. 86%. So look at those two numbers together. So LGBT people were raised going to communities of faith on a weekly basis as under 18 at a higher rate than the general American population. The same group of people were asked how many stayed or how many left. How many of you left your communities of faith at some point after age 18? The general American population was asked that question. What do you think that number might be for them? 40? 27%. So lower than I anticipated. But of course, they're asking people all ages. So it could be people who left and came back. How do you think that number changes when LGBT people were asked the same question? Higher, lower? Higher? Higher? Yep, it's 54%. So LGBT people are leaving their communities of faith at twice the rate of the general American population. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I share this because I have a saying I try and live by. It is seek first to understand. Seek first to understand. The reason the book is called Us Versus Us, and I don't agree with every conclusion that this man comes to, even though he does hold a biblical view on sexuality, um, but the reason he called it Us Versus Us is because for a long time we looked at LGBT people as if they weren't part of the community, as if they didn't they didn't grow up in these pews, or obviously it's all faiths, so synagogue or whatever, that they weren't part of this story, but they are. And it humanizes them. We need to enter into someone's experience in order to truly have compassion on them and be able to extend Jesus' real love to them. So if we, we return to the story in Mark 10, 
we notice that he ran up to Jesus. He didn't just happen to stroll by. It wasn't a chance meeting. He perhaps heard that Jesus was in town and just had to see him. I believe there was already a stirring in his heart that how he was living, what he was experiencing, wasn't all there is to life. He had a question that he desperately wanted to know the answer to, and only Jesus could answer it. If we look at verse 32 in the same chapter, we notice that Jesus and his disciples were going to Jerusalem. Do you guys know why they were going to Jerusalem? Passover. They were going to celebrate the Passover, and not just any Passover, but Jesus' last Passover, after which he would be crucified. In fact, when Luke records this moment in chapter 9, verse 51, he says, as the time approached for him, meaning Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He was a man on a mission. He knew it. He was going there to die. And yet, because of Jesus' deep love for this young man, he took the time to pause, look in his eyes, and answer his question. So, with this undercurrent of Jesus' deep love for this man, what can we learn from this story? Number one, our identity matters to Jesus. Our identity matters to Jesus. My husband's grandmother is still alive. She's going to be 91 at the end of this month. We call her Gigi, which is for great Grammy. And uh, she was raised all over the place, in, basically in foster families, sometimes with family. But she didn't really have a big family. And when she married into the Simons family, she all of a sudden had this big family. Her husband had all these great aunts that loved him and took care of him because his parents also died, both of them, when he was young. And so one day she goes over to visit Great Aunt Agnes. And Great Aunt Agnes was an elderly woman. Obviously, Gigi didn't know her when she was young. She knew her as a lively but elderly, white-haired woman. And she brought her a gift. Beautiful box, you know, tissue paper and all that. Aunt Agnes opens the box, and it's a brightly colored bathrobe. And Aunt Agnes says to Gigi, oh, honey, I can't wear this bathrobe. Gigi's like, why? Like, our, she couldn't even fathom what could be wrong with the bathrobe. And Aunt Agnes said, well, honey, I'm a redhead. <laughs> well, Aunt Agnes was no longer a redhead. She was a white, well, I shouldn't call her whitehead. That sounds awful. She had white hair, let's say, okay? But being red-haired was so ingrained in who she was and that redheads could only wear certain colors that she couldn't accept the gift. Now, that's a silly story when talking about such a serious topic. But can you think of something in your life that without it, you would no longer really know who you are and how you fit into the world? I wonder if the rich young ruler in this story, and we call him that because that's what he's called historically in the church, and that's what Luke calls him, though he's not called that here in Mark, I wonder if he was pretty settled on his identity, that of a very wealthy and powerful man. I like to put myself in the story and imagine the scenario that's going on, and I wonder if his father before him was also a man of means, and perhaps even generations before that. 
I was pretty settled in my identity as a lesbian when I became a Christian in January of 1999. And when I began to walk in obedience to Christ in the area of my sexuality, I like to say my struggle with same-sex attraction was like a swarm of killer bees that were constantly right after me. You know, you remember the, I don't know if anybody watches these old cartoons, but now on Saturday morning, you can watch like Bugs Bunny and um, Popeye and all that. My kids tape them, like the DVR, you know, taping them. And so they're watching cartoons that I didn't even watch when I was a kid because that's how old they are. They weren't even on the television, right? But there's the road runner and he's got the swarm of bees behind him and it's right there chasing him. That's how I felt. I felt as if I stopped running from my same-sex attraction, then I would surely be engulfed. But at a certain point, I realized I wasn't meant to be running from something. I was meant to be running to someone, the, only, the one who made me and the only one who could define me. Sim Albury, who wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay, says this, when you encounter Jesus Christ, you are no longer defined by who you love. You are now defined by who has loved you. So the first thing we learn from this story is that our identity matters to God. The second thing we learn is that God is trustworthy. I say choose to trust God because we have a choice in the matter, right? We live in a culture that tells us we must have certain things in order to be happy, to achieve contentment. Things like a house, a good job, a career, a spouse or a companion. Wouldn't it be awesome to throw in some well-behaved kids in there? <laughs> right? But at some point, someone had lied to this young man and told him that he needed his wealth in order to be happy and fulfilled. Clearly, he couldn't imagine his life without it. Someone had told me, lots of someones, had told me a different lie. You were born gay. This is who you are. You will never be happy if you don't fully embrace them, this, and I believed them. Right before this story in the Gospel of Mark is the story of the little children coming to Jesus. You may be familiar with it. The disciples were trying to stop people, parents really, from being, bringing their children to Jesus because the parents wanted him to bless them. How does Jesus respond? He says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What does it mean to, to receive the kingdom of God like a little child? Well, little children naturally trust. When you take a baby home from the hospital, you don't have to sit the baby down in their little car seat and say, baby, if you need anything, just cry. If you're hungry, cry. If you poop your pants, cry. You know, if you're cold, cry. If you're lonely, cry. Because we know after nine months in the womb, sometimes babies cry at night, not because they need something, but because they're like, ah, where am I? You know, <laughs> what happened? I was in this safe, warm place, and now I'm out in the cold, dark world, right? You don't have to do that because they know. They naturally trust, at least until that trust is broken. 
It's not a coincidence that Jesus talks about the blind trust of a child right before he encounters the rich young man. After Jesus' answer, this young man wasn't quite as eager to seek Jesus. He didn't trust that no matter what Jesus required of him, he would be okay because God is trustworthy. Most would say wealth is a gray area in scripture. It's not a sin to have money. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is idolatry is a sin. Making anything an idol, any, putting anything above God is a sin. And we assume from context that whatever business plan this young man was following, he wanted to continue doing so no matter what the cost God's design for sexuality is not a gray area. It is clear in the Bible that God created sexual intimacy to be expressed between one man and one woman who've committed to each other for a lifetime in marriage. Yes, we can say amen to that alongside recognizing that this seems unfair to people with same-sex attraction. Again, entering into their shoes. It seemed unfair to me. In fact, after becoming a Christian, I had another lesbian relationship. I felt as if I was facing a choice. Jesus, in one hand, completely unknown territory, and we know that the fear of the unknown is a powerful force. And my lesbianism, in my other hand, with its comfort, familiarity, and safety, and what I thought was my only chance at real love. I had to start taking him at his word and believing he is who he says he is, like good, he's good. His plans for us are not to harm us, it says in Jeremiah 29, right? And believing that he will do what he has said he will do. I had to choose to trust that he wasn't withholding love and fulfillment from me with his design for sexuality. That somehow he would work it all out. If I were to be single, he would fulfill me. If I ever got married, he would still fulfill me because a relationship does not complete us. But a spouse could compliment me if that was God's will. But real love, regardless of relationship status, can be found in Jesus Christ. So the second thing we learn is that we have a choice. We need to choose to trust God because the third thing is there is a reward. Now, you can always count on Peter, the disciple Peter, to say what everyone's thinking, but most of them are afraid to ask. As every once in a while, the James and John, the sons of thunder, come up with something crazy too. But Peter's sitting there listening to this whole thing, and this is how he responds. Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Like, Jesus, what are we going to get out of this? We left it all behind. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. Now, fields were like a big thing back then. So they're all like ready to sign up. Where's the dotted line? We want in, Jesus. And Jesus continues, along with persecutions... <laughs> Part of the package. That's why you always got to read the fine print, right? <laughs> and in the age to come, eternal life. 
Society had lied to me, really has lied to all of us, and told us that in order to feel complete, we need to be in a marriage or committed relationship, that romance and sex is the end-all, be-all. I mean, think about it. I, talk, I spoke to a youth group on Friday night, and I talk about a thing my friend Russell Willingham calls romantic orthodoxy, that romance and sex will meet my deepest needs. It's in every television show, movie, book, love song. Just go home and watch a Disney movie, especially the older ones. Cinderella sees the prince at the ball, walks up to him. It looks like literally they have three seconds of conversation. They start dancing. And do you know the song that she sings? Anybody remember? So this is love. Mm. No, Cinderella, this is not love. You just met the guy. And we can laugh, but that is indoctrination. Seriously. Okay. <laughs> that was not in the script. Okay. And I bought into that lie. But what Jesus is saying is no matter what you've had to leave behind to follow me, God sees your sacrifice does not go unnoticed. And I'm standing there with Jesus over here and my lesbianism over here, and I couldn't decide what to do. So God, in his great mercy, had my girlfriend dump me. So, <laughs> that, yes, amen. She was quoting scripture, too. That's a funny story for another time. Um, she only knew, like, three. So, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and it was from the book of Revelation. I'll just tell you. She said, you know, God wants you to be hot or cold. He hates lukewarm Christians. Where did she hear the scripture? So we have to break up. And I was just so in shock. I'm sitting there thinking, well, God speaks through donkeys sometimes. So I don't even know what to say. And I can laugh now. But in that moment, I made a decision. I drew a line in the sand. I was going to be obedient in the area of my sexuality no matter what, even if it cost me everything, including the possibility of marriage because I thought marrying a woman was my only option. And it has been worth it. Though I, I state clearly, make no mistake, I still experience same-sex attraction. I don't say struggle because I don't struggle with it. It's not a struggle. There's other things in my life that are a struggle. But as I said in the first service, I won't ask for a show of hands. But I imagine all the people here who've never experienced same-sex attraction, when you marry, I see a bunch of couples around here, no one's, again, no show of hands, you still occasionally find other people attractive. Apparently not, you guys. You are so holy. <laughs> And when that happens to me, I'll just speak from my experience, whether it's a male or a female, I say, Jesus, you did a good job with that person, and I move on. <laughs> so that swarm of killer bees is now like an occasional fruit fly, and I am married. I think I have a picture of my family up there. Um, Dun, 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 dun. Hey, there we are. This is actually, we have a like super professional picture. I'm actually wearing the same outfit because I only have like three preaching outfits. 
Not because I'm a poor missionary, <laughs> because I like them. <laughs> I'm going to wear them till they wear out. So it's always funny because I did a training a couple weeks ago, and they put up my professional headshot, which again is this sweater, and I was wearing the same sweater. <laughs> so they took a picture of the event like while I'm talking, and I posted it on Instagram. Look, I only own one sweater. <laughs> no. <laughs> but this was our impromptu picture. We went to the beach on January 1st, and no, we didn't jump in the water. I forgot that was a thing until I'm like, why are there, it's like 40 degrees out there. Why are there people like running around in bikinis and stuff? Because they're crazy. That's why. But um, my husband, Roy, is in the front with the red glasses. Uh, my oldest son, Nathaniel's in the back. He is six foot one, age 15. I like this picture because it shows that my middle son, you can kind of tell he's now taller than me, JJ. He's 13 and Maggie is eight. And I, I love my family. I'm so glad I have a family. That's, I'm humbled by that. But there was no guarantee of any of this when I surrendered fully to him. I had to trust when he said there is a reward, not only in this life, but in the one to come. And the last thing I want to share that we learn from this story is how Jesus loves people. Christians who shared the gospel with me genuinely loved me. They never took it upon themselves to say, I should not be a lesbian. They just pointed me to Jesus Christ and his love. Like everyone else, I was a sinner in need of a savior. That was my primary need. My sexual choices were only one of many indications of that primary need. And in the story of the rich young man, before Jesus answered, before the Son of God put his finger on that thing in this young man's life that kept God from being number one, I imagine this deep pause because it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And if we go back to the survey just for a moment, people were asked, how many of you are open to returning? Of those who left, how many of you are open to returning to your communities of faith? What do you think this number percentage-wise would be for the general American population? 80? 50? This number is very sad. It's 9%. It doesn't let you off the hook, <laughs> but it's 9%. And what do you think this number is for LGBT people? Higher, lower? Higher? Higher? Lower? Somebody has to say same, and then we've covered all the bases. No. <laughs> 76%. of LGBT people are open to returning to their communities of faith. And when they were asked, what would it take for you to return? The number one answer was feeling loved. They would need to feel loved. Now, some of you may be already hesitating because you're wondering, what does that mean? Well, let's find out in their own words from the survey. Tasha, a 21-year-old lesbian living in Miami, Florida, said, if you let any church people read this, tell them I don't have to be right to feel loved. I have to be dignified in our disagreement. It's not, it's actually possible to agree to disagree because through the love of Christ. And Kim, a 42-year-old lesbian living in Jackson, Mississippi says, I hear God's love is the great equalizer. 
It's hard to believe when I've never been told God loves me. I think God loves me, but when I tried going to church a few years back, I sure didn't feel it. I think they're scared I'm going to cause problems because we might not agree. I don't care about that. I want God's love to bring me into the fold like it does with everyone else. This makes me tear up because I'm imagining myself at 40-something years old going to church and still not hearing that God loves me. Like, thank God he showed up when I was 23 and that Christians were brave enough to tell me Jesus loved me in my sin. He didn't especially love me or especially have to die for me because I was gay. Many gay people are given the impression that Jesus literally had to hang longer on the cross for them. And the only way for us to combat that lie, because it's a lie, is to show them the real love of Jesus Christ. That is the heart of this interaction. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now I would like for you to close your eyes and bow your heads, please, as we close in prayer. If there's anyone here who has never experienced the love of Christ, I mean for the first time that you recognize Maybe this is the first time you've heard that Jesus loves you and that Jesus died for your sin and that God sent his only, not his extra, his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. If you want to accept that love of a savior today for the first time, please raise your hand so I can pray for you. And then I want to open the altars. To those of you who would like prayer, I would love to pray for you. You can come up for prayer for any reason, but I specifically would like to pray as well for those who, who feel like you know Jesus loves you in your head, but it hasn't really sunk into your heart. And this is a common problem because Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they would know this love that surpasses knowledge, that they would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I want to pray for you as well. Thanks for listening to the Bethel New England Message of the Week. Make sure you share this message with a friend or family member to encourage them today. Head to BethelNE.com to stay up to date with everything that's going on at Bethel New England.